This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help them get stuff done, but more importantly, to help their people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Professor Cyril Bouquet. Cyril is one of the authors of Alien Thinking, How to Bring Your Breakthrough Ideas to Life and Professor of Strategy and Innovation at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. Cyril has spent many years advising some of Europe's leading companies on strategy, as you're going to hear, talking about the French train operators and UEFA, amongst others. And we talk about how to experiment, how you can use your imagination to get stuff done, managing attention, and much more. This is Cyril Bouquet. I'm with Cyril Bouquet. Good afternoon. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Let's just start with a bit about you. So your job title is Professor of Strategy and Innovation, which is just straight away a very, sounds like a very grown up job title, right? So at what age did you decide you wanted to become a Professor of Strategy and Innovation? Oh, you know, my two parents are professors. So if you had asked me when, when, uh, when I was a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would have said the last thing I want to do is to actually become a professor. But, but somehow, you know, this must have been my, my destiny. Um, I, I studied in Canada. I did all of my studies in Canada, but I'm also a French citizen. And at the time, uh, I had to do my military service. This was a, a mandatory thing uh, for all the, uh, the, um, the, the, the people who, who finished their, their, their schooling. They, they, they have to, to essentially enroll in the military service for, for a year. Um, but there's one way that you could do your service, and, and that's by being a professor in, in a foreign okay. country. And then you sort of represent the country um, and, and, and help, you know, sort of defend the French language and, and, and so on. And so, in fact, that's what I managed to do. I became a professor a couple of years, but it was really a way of, you know, giving a form of service to, to France as part of my civil service. And, and then I discovered it. I, I loved it. So, so I, I went back to school, did, did, a, did a PhD to become a professor, and I've loved it uh, ever since. Nice. And you're based at IMD in um, Lausanne, very famous business school. Um, and I wanted to ask you just what, what does your day-to-day work look like? And that might be different right now. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, obviously, we live in a very different type of, of, of world with, with the COVID crisis. But, but IMD is a, is a business school that is a little bit different than other business schools around the world in that we really work with, with executives around their issues, their challenges, so we're a place of, of learning. We want to inspire them to think differently about the future. We want to help them uh, innovate. We, have, we want to help them become a, a better team. Um, as a, but, 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 but we do that by, by facilitating conversations and, and, and getting them to, to think differently. And so I work every day with, with senior executives around the world, across industries, uh, on, on their, their issues, their challenges. And in the process, obviously, we try to nurture certain skills that we know are absolutely vital for them to continue to succeed and fulfill their mission as, as executives who are trying to bring progress to their business and society as a well. whole. Right. And one of the things I saw from your biog was um, you were involved in facilitating this huge meeting, 650 of the top leaders uh, merging two very big organizations, so SNCF, the French train operator, and then RFF, the railway owner. So you're bringing together these two sort of different worlds. And, you know, I've been involved in a couple of mergers and and, and a lot of culture work over the years. And that just, as I read that, it sounded frightening, the idea of 650 leaders and probably a lot of differences in the cultures of the way they work and so on. So yeah, it was one of the most fascinating experiences that I've, yeah. I've had a chance to, to experience. Uh, and also, as you said, quite scary. I mean, I had a lot of mm. nightmares visualizing, you know, how am I going to essentially mobilize a group of 650 people coming from two different organizations? As you said, at very different cultures at the time. And the objective was really get them to behave more as a united force, trying to write a new chapter for this combined entity, if you will. 
And 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 at the time, I, I was approached, or IMD was approached, the business school uh, where I work, um, because uh, indeed it was a very difficult context for those two companies. Uh, you know, if you're French, uh, any French person would remember that that time, uh, because in fact uh, there had been a, a very serious uh, train accident in the country that claimed the lives of nine people, and and essentially it was due to bad maintenance on the track. And then those two entities, if you will, the train operator and then the the uh, infrastructure uh, owner uh, essentially argued, you know, who was at fault. And, right. and, and the state, you know, sort of felt, well, you know, instead of arguing, we should just get those tracks, you know, in, in order. And there was another another little story that the train operator had ordered the next generation of trains to uh, to come uh, and be delivered. And, and they were, and it was a cost of a few billion uh, euros. Uh, and then when the trains arrived, they realized they couldn't enter the train stations right, because the train stations were too narrow. And so all the train stations that were managed by LFF, if you will, had to be retrofitted. And that was the last drop, you know, if you will, for the state to say, instead of being two separate entities, we want you to sort of become one united force and really find a way to collaborate a little bit better. And this we put in place uh, a six-month journey, if you will, where they could sort of you know, develop a shared perspective as to what they wanted their company to become, but also more concretely, advance a few critical um, chapters, uh, like indeed, you know, how do you fix the tracks, but don't stop the trains from operating at, at the same time. So that required a little bit of genius, if you will, to fix and continue to drive the trains at the same time. Uh, or, you know, indeed, how do you develop new solutions for our customers uh, because there were a lot of ways that you could improve the passenger's experience uh, on, on, on the train. Yeah. And, and indeed, part of it was virtual, but there were a couple of moments where we got together all 650 leaders in one room and I had about 80 teams working in parallel on different types of, of issues and, and teams, you know, sort of evaluating each other's ideas, voting on each other's ideas, giving feedback to each other. And through that day, they realized that indeed, they could develop a context where, you know, they could achieve a lot together by being uh, able to have good conversations uh, and share perspectives and 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 really co-create essentially the company that they wanted to have for for the future. So I think it was a very important milestone for for the uh, for this organization, and they've implemented many of the ideas that that came through this six month journey. And I, I keep a very, very fond memory of, of the time that we spent together. One question around that. So when you're leading change, it strikes me that change really um, hits home at the heart of how the brain works, right? So you've got the, the, the kind of amygdala part of the brain, the lizard brain part of the brain that's all about fear and fight or flight. And when you're leading change, there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. But then what you're outlining there is all of these very positive um, you know, potential um, opportunities that will come through the merger going well. But yes. we don't necessarily see the logic of that when we're in that fear state. So what do you have to do as a facilitator that really helps people to to get over the fear and see the, the more logical part of the brain, which doesn't tend to shout as yeah. loud, does it? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a great question that, that you ask. And, and you know, I, I know a lot of facilitators that play the the, the fear account, right? Oh, look, the industry is changing. And, and, and if we don't, you know, uh, do something significant, we might be in trouble. And I've, right, so you just create a bigger fear and then yeah, but their I, but fears are changing just smaller. Yeah. And, and I've never enjoyed it. Yeah. And also as a participant, I've had the chance at IMD to have leaders who really played the, the excitement card, the energy card, right? That the future is full of hopes, is full of, of, of possibilities. And somehow, you know, we, we hold the keys in, in our hands. And, and so I think what, what we try to do in particular for this organization, but other organizations that I've worked with is, you know, at the very beginning of the journey, I basically ask people about their hopes for the future, but also their fears. And, you know, I collected, and you can imagine it was thousands and thousands of pages of, of, of text, right? It was like asking them to write an essay about their hopes and, yeah. and, and their fears for, for the future. And then essentially we treated that as a kind of research project. Uh, today, th- th- there's great tools that exist, you know, where you can use AI algorithms to try to process that uh, um, uh, in, in very sophisticated ways. But, you know, we basically try to identify the themes, you know, what is it that people are talking about when they think about the future, both what excites them, 
but what also makes them nervous. And then essentially we, we wrote a script that was the, the synthesis of their hopes and their fears. And we created a video that we projected to them at the beginning of that you know, day uh, when we uh, had the, for the first time the 650 leaders uh, in the room uh, together. And that's how I started the meeting, by playing the video. Mm. That was a very inspirational moment around their hopes and their fears for the future. And the video ended up so with a simple question, what are you going to do? <laughs> Right. right. Because yeah. the hopes are there and they are wonderful opportunities to build a company of your dreams and, and we are the keys. And, 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 you know, for me to, to be able to work with a group of executives and ask ourselves, how can we build a company of our dreams is a fantastic motivation. And indeed, we know that there's a place where we don't want to, 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 to get. And, and those are the fears. But to me, the fears have, have, have never been giving me or, or the people I work with the energy to really accomplish extraordinary things. Yeah. But the hopes and, and the, uh, the ambition we have about what, what is possible to accomplish can get people to do wonderful, wonderful things. Yeah, and so I guess it's about being excited about the future, but it's also what's beautiful about that is also about being heard, right? So it's like, here are the fears and we're, we're going to show you what you said and really just take on board the idea that we listen to you and that, that we hear you, which I guess is just really... Um, like reassuring in that moment right it's like yeah they get it we we can trust them and it kind of builds from there right and then you did this project with um uefa so i'm a big football fan so i'm just curious i'm curious i'm curious what you're going to change uh for the euros in 2024 so you did this innovation project with uefa tell us about that yeah so so i mean you know every year i've, I've been teaching uh, uh innovation in particular in my mba class and and, and, and every year I, I try, you know, to, to bring a real, real life, you know, sort of challenge uh, to, to the MBAs. And, and so for a couple of years, we worked in, you know, with, with, with teams around improving the quality of life for patients that, that go to the hospital. And it was an open innovation contest. And two years in a row, we, we won that competition. So it was great. But then every couple of years, you kind of want to change the, the topic. And then obviously in Lausanne, we're, we're in a place where, uh, you know, we, we have a certain proximity to all the... The sports associations, we mm. are home. Lausanne is the home of the Olympic Committee. Uh, but indeed, the UFR is also um, uh, in Lyon, very, very close to us. And so I have regular contacts with them. And I said, hey, what about involving all the MBAs, about 90, uh, 90 uh, students, uh, in combination with students coming from ECAL, the School of Arts and Design um, in, in Lausanne? And, and we're going to get them to think about your 2024. Like, how, how can we make the experience a little bit better for uh, for fans uh, over there, and 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 that's what what we did. And so for for just a week, you know, we treated that as a boot camp. I was teaching students innovation, but at the same time, we're trying to apply the insights to some some real uh, real challenges. And 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 the teams developed some fantastic concepts, right? I mean, from uh, uh, indeed uh, visualizing, you know, how can we help parents feel safer in the stadium when their kids, you know, start to run around and. And, uh, and we're afraid of, of, of losing them right uh, in, in, in the crowd. And so how can we use geolocalization uh, to, to always know where your kids are? It's relatively simple to implement, but somehow nobody ever thought that you know, this should be done in, in, in stadium. Um, to, you know, hey, I'd like to go to the toilets, right? uh, but I'm afraid of missing part of the action. And yeah. in fact, you know, I'm not even sure where to go because there might be a big lineup and through the app, you know, is there a way that I can sort of visualize the different toilets and, and how long is the wait at each one and what is the shortest uh, path, right, to, 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 to get to the toilet and, and, and not miss right, too much of the action, you know, during, during that moment. And so, so th there were a lot of, you know, sort of interesting ideas also around changing the narrative. How do we make sure that we include the local communities, in, in fact, mm. you know, in, uh, you know, all the excitement that takes place, you know, when uh, when you organize the Euro in a particular city or in a particular country, the soccer fans like you and I, Graham, are happy, but there's all kinds of other people who might think this is disturbing. Mm -hmm. This is bringing all kinds of unwanted uh, visitors right to the to the city. How can you make sure that this is a moment that creates opportunities for people to share, you know, beautiful moments together? And a number of teams try to think, you know, how can we involve the local communities in in, in different ways. So, so, so we'll see, um, you know, what is actually implemented in the next year, uh, 2024. I mean, obviously the COVID 
situation uh, uh, brought um, a little bit of excitement uh, <laughs> when it comes to innovation because it's also a great opportunity now for UEFA to think about you know how can we uh, engage the fans differently at home, not just in the stadium. And so that's very much part of the conversation going forward. Uh, and in fact, this experience was so successful that in uh, September of this year, we are actually opening up. So we are running this bootcamp again. But this time it's not going to be with the uh, MBA students. It's going to be with whoever <laughs> wants to uh, to come and, and, uh, and develop those ideas with us. And we'll do that with UEFA and also the Olympic Committee, right? And it will be around the... Again, the future of of of, um, of, of sports and um, and women's football in particular. How can we uh, come up with innovations that will benefit the development of women's football, whether it is for UEFA or for the Olympic uh, competitions? So 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 again, stay tuned. Uh, check the IND website if you if you'd like to know more about this. Uh, but this will be organized in September 2021 or November rather, November 2021. Sorry. Sounds amazing. Honestly, the amount of times I go to Aston Villa games and I'm in the away end and there's just no toilets, right? Like for the whole of halftime, I think they treat the away fans even worse. So if that could, if that could, uh, you know, make its way down to uh, to league games, that would be amazing. Uh, let's talk about your book. All right, you have a copy. Yeah, fantastic. I have a copy. Um, it only arrived a few days ago, and I've been. Um, been diving into it, but um, I have to say the cover is amazing as well. Um, yeah, you're like... privileged because I, I did not get one uh, yet, right? So, so you have it even before me. Can you believe that? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I feel like when I'm done with this, I should I should send it to you. Uh, if they, you they, promise have... they, they sent it to me, so I should receive it very very. Don't shortly. have yours arriving. <laughs> Alien thinking. So, should we start with just the concept of um, like why is it important to think like an alien, and what is a what is alien thinking to you? So, so, so why is it important to think like an alien? I think today we live in a world that requires innovation, right? I mean, we, we feel somehow that we've received all kinds of tools. I know all the people I meet on IMD programs are smart people who have great intent. They want to bring progress to their business and to society as a well. whole. I have no you know, sort of fear when I think about the future that a lot is, is, mm, is possible. Yeah. And especially now that we're in this sort of COVID kind of world, right? It's an ideal moment for organizations to reflect on, you know, hey, what's working, what's not working so well, because people are willing. They are willing to consider different ways of doing things. Yeah. And, and somehow it's a great time for, for innovation. I think organizations, teams, individuals have the opportunity to, to think differently about the future. But the reality, even though we know it's important to innovate, the reality is that when you look at what is happening, you meet a lot of people who struggle and a lot of organizations we invest a tremendous deal of time and effort on innovation processes. They want their people to be creative. They want their people to identify interesting opportunities that could be addressed, come up with new ways of organizing activities. But we see a lot of incremental improvements, less radical thinking. Yeah. Seems difficult for people to escape the, the standard way of doing things, right? So there's this kind of paradigm that exists in an industry, in a company, in a team, that sort of dictates a logic of, of how things should be. And of course, people innovate within that paradigm, yeah. but they have trouble sort of coming up with fundamentally different ways of thinking about what's actually possible to, to achieve. And, and really, we wrote this book, Alien Thinking, and I think the, the metaphor says it all, right? Like you're, you're coming with a mindset that helps you to escape this paradigm, right? You, yeah. you don't share, you're coming from a different world, you don't share this dominant logic, and somehow you're able to, to see things in a new light, right? And, and, and it's not magical, uh, you know, it's, it's not that you need a special DNA to be able to, um, to, to think differently and to think like an alien. There's a very, you know, simple uh, set of habits that, that you can develop that can help you be quite successful on, on that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about these different habits. So it kind of feels like there's, um, there's two, two parts of the alien thing, right? One is like the mindset of, I just need to think like an outsider. I need to, I need to come in fresh, um, mm -hmm. almost like deconstruct everything that's there and start with a blank sheet of paper again. And almost, you know, how yeah. would I design it if I was, if I was new on the planet today? Yeah. And then you've got these break, the breakdown of the five different things. I was, I was trying to think, alliteration is the wrong word. What's the word? Acronym. That's acronym. the word I'm looking for. Acronym, yeah. yeah. Just lost the word for it. Yeah, so, you've got, yeah, yeah. so you've got attention, levitation, imagination, experimentation, and navigation. So we'll talk about each of those five. Yeah. 
Um, but let's just talk about people who you think have the mindset first. So this alien mindset, and you talk about Jeff Bezos in the book, and um, there's a couple of really nice case studies at the beginning where you talk about a doctor fighting Ebola and then a woman yeah. that's been in prison. Do you want to just talk about a couple of those people and like sure. who, do, yeah. who do you really respect right now that yeah. you feel like well, I mean, has you know, a really good mindset around this the, stuff? The, the, you know, a case, I guess the, the, the Ebola situation, right, that, that has a lot of, you know, common links, right, to, 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 to the situation that, that we experience right now with, with the COVID crisis. Mm. But, but but indeed, you know, I mean, uh, Billy Fisher was a, was a doctor and an epidemiologist, uh, uh, and and you know, completely changed, if you will, the paradigm of, of the World Health Organization around, you know, taking care of of, of people who who have uh, been uh, identified as as you know suffering with, with Ebola and saving their lives in many cases, and and, and really changing the local prospects in in, in many uh, countries uh, in in Africa. That, that suffered with, with with this situation, and and it just happened to be the the son, in fact, of, of my my dear colleague here at IMD, uh, who, who just recently retired, Bill Fisher, and so his son is Billy okay. Fisher, Billy Fisher right. Jr. And one day he received a call from the World Health Organization, and they said, Billy, right, we need you to come to um to Geneva to 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 help us think about you know sort of epidemics, but this was supposed to be an intellectual assignment, if you will, right? He was supposed to spend a few weeks in Geneva and then go back. He was a professor at the time in, at the University of Carolina in, in the States. And, and, and he said, sure, I'll come. Except 72 hours later, they said, well, there's a change of plans. We actually want you to board on a plane and, and go to, to West, West Africa, where they've suffered, experiencing just right now one of the worst right. Ebola epidemics of all time. And he felt, you know, what the hell? I mean, I'm not an Ebola specialist. Uh, I'm a critical care, uh, you know, uh, professor. I, I, I take care of people. Uh, I know a lot about uh, pandemics, but I'm not an Ebola expert. And, you know, this particular village where they wanted him to go, uh, the mortality rate of about 70%, in 70% of the people yeah. that, 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 were, that were basically identified as, as you know, uh, suffering from, from Ebola would die within a period of days. And so he really thought about it, you know, should I go on this plane or not? And of course he did. He did. And, and, and then when he arrived, he quickly realized that none of his sort of, you know, repertoire of tools, uh, you know, applied, that, that, that somehow his knowledge was li limited. It was a very different type of environment. Uh, he didn't have uh, uh, CT scans at his disposal. He didn't have X-rays. He couldn't even put a stethoscope in his ears because, as you can imagine, he was dressed, mm. you know, with very, you know, important, like protective gear and, and so on. Yeah. And so what do you do when you're in that kind of situation? You have, you have to think differently. And then he realized that, that essentially the, the paradigm of, of the World Health Organization at the time was, was broken. The paradigm was as follows. They identify people who are, who are sick with Ebola, they quarantine them, and then they track all of their contacts, right? It's exactly what we do right now yeah, right. Yeah. For, for COVID. Except what was happening is that everybody pretty much was dying. 70% to 80% of the people were dying. And so the family of the people who had, you know, patients that, that were infected with, with Ebola, you know, would do everything they could to, to escape that quarantine system because they knew that the moment that the person mm. would be put on the quarantine, it was a death warrant. And so they could not even perform the, the rituals that were so important to them, taking care of their loved ones, you know, burying them properly, and so yeah. they would rather hide their loved ones and then risk the run of, of, of getting themselves infected than essentially give them in, in the hands of those, you know, doctors. And, and so the paradigm was failing. And so basically what, what Billy did is that we realized, you know, we have to save lives. I mean, the, the quarantine system will not work unless we start to save lives. And then he basically realized that a lot of people were dying and 70 to 80 percent. But there's a small proportion of people that could survive long enough for their immune system to, to kick in. And, and win against the virus. And why? Uh, the people who died before, often they had a, a pre-exposure to, um, uh, to, um, to, to other types of, 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 of diseases that really weaken yeah. their, their, their immune system. And so it gave them a lot of fluid, uh, antibiotics, uh, and, and then it was able to reduce the mortality rates in a few days or a few weeks from 70% to less than 50%. And that totally changed, if you will, the... the the, the local population reaction to this uh, to this uh, to this situation, and now they would work with the doctors. And, and what to me was interesting in that story is that with relatively simple tasks, task, he, he was able to fundamentally, 
you know, bring huge progress to, to an organization as established as, as the World Health Organization. But he was not a rebel. It's not somebody who broke things mm. because he was smart and, 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 and felt there was a better way of doing things. He was a rebel with a code, right? There was a very important mission that everybody cared about. And then somehow he was able to mobilize people, you know, behind that, that, that mission and realize that if we want to be true to ourselves, if we want to accomplish this mission, maybe there's a slightly different way of doing things. And, you know, somehow he was able to trigger change and, and mobilize people behind his vision. And that's a very interesting view of alien thinkers. If you will, they think differently, but they also do it by not breaking things for the sake of breaking things. Yeah, they are not yeah. loose cannons. They are not rebels. They are not misfits. They are creative thinkers who want to bring progress and who carry uh, people alongside, you know, uh, uh, with them on, on, on their journey of change. Yeah, one of the things I was really struck by in the book with that story as well was um, you you described like the operating conditions of, of uh, you know, the surgery he was doing. And it was like uh, the the machines needed software updates and the they had to trick the software because they didn't have internet and they weren't able to to do it so they kept to have to keep moving the date back so that it not got, it didn't get to the place where it the machine shut down because they hadn't been updated and That's then right. there was things like they didn't have the dehumidifying equipment so they used bags of rice and they're using like fridges to to lower the temperature of of certain tools and stuff so do you think there's something there in that like the fact that he had so many of his normal you know, operating, you know, procedures disrupted, like everything else was kind of either falling apart or different or yeah. in a dif difficult state. Do you think that put his brain into more of a state where he could deconstruct the things that really mattered there? And is there, so is there some value to, to take from that in terms of just yeah. regular teams, you know? It's interesting that there's indeed, you know, when, when everything is, is working smoothly, right, there's very little incentive for people to, to be creative and, and, yeah. and to think about what else could be. But, but when everything is disrupted and when you don't have the luxury of relying on those procedures and on this equipment that is working very well and so on, then you have no choice, right? I mean, you have to find a way. And it's interesting to realize that many of the interesting innovations that have come, right, in, in, even in the field of, of, of management and often come, coming from, from people who have very little. Mm, <laughs> but, you know, there's yeah. a whole field of research on frugal innovation, uh, and, and again, how you look at, at entrepreneurs in Africa and, and Asia who have very little means at their disposal, but somehow they find new and interesting ways to use what they have. Yeah. And, and, and that's really creativity right? and imagination. In fact, when we talk about imagination, we talk about imagination as not something that is a eureka moment that people have about what could be that doesn't exist today. But it's really looking at the present and looking at various means that could be at your disposal. And often they are dispersed, right? I mean, you notice something in one part of the organization and something else in, in, in another part, and then you put those together and maybe you combine those two things with an interesting practice coming from a different industry. Yeah. And then you have a really cool innovation. And, and, and innovators, you know, really think like that. And creative people think about what can they combine in new and interesting ways. And when you don't have a lot, you look for those combinations. You look at the few things you have, and then you ask yourself, what can I do with that? So, you know, in the examples that you, that you mentioned, right, it would be easy to say, I need a new machine. I need, you know, those machines need mm. to be updated. When in fact, you know, you probably have the tools to resolve that situation in a creative way. Yeah. But the only reason you would think like that is because there's no other option, right? That's the thing, yeah. To, to survive. So innovation often isn't coming up with a brand new idea. It's putting two other ideas together and then you come up with, you know, the combination of that becomes exciting. And innovators something that steer you can with pride. Steer with right? pride. And innovators steer with pride. We, we often think that there is, you know, virtue, mm. but nobody lives in the future. I, I don't know anybody who lives in the future. I don't know anybody who has this talent of imagining something from a blank page, right? Yeah. In fact, you know, new old science, you know, tells us, the research is pretty clear about that, that, that everything that we imagine about the future is simply a recombination of, of experiences that we've noticed, that we've uh, appreciated uh, in, in the past and how we combine our memories and our observations, uh, you know, really is going to impact the way we, we think about the future. And so innovators still with pride, they live in the present, 
they see interesting ideas, interesting concepts, interesting practices, and then they find ways to combine them in new and interesting ways. And that's the pride part, right? Yeah. I think it was Pablo Picasso, right, who had said, uh, good artists copy, great artists steal. Mm. And so innovation is never about copying. It's about adding right, mm. to something that already exists. And the way you add is often by putting things together in ways that nobody had ever envisioned. So let's talk about the acronym ALIEN and the, and the framework around that. So it starts with attention. One of the things that was interesting to me about that is that, you know, so my book, Productivity Ninja, um, one of the things I say at the beginning of that book is let's stop thinking about time management and let's start thinking about attention management. And the big part of that is is when you start using your attention really wisely and focus on the best attention that you have in the day to really focus down on the biggest challenges that you have in the day. Um, that's when you start to see really great results in terms of productivity. And basically, that's a lot of what you're saying in that chapter of the book. So do you want to talk a bit more about what attention means to you and what attention management means in that in that kind of innovative sense? Again, attention, we, we have to make choices as to, you know, what are we going to focus on, right? I mean, so when we are trying to identify problems that could be solved, we're trying to think about solutions that make sense, we have to somehow pay attention because there's so much information out there that somehow we have to make a choice as to what do we want to focus on, right? And, and, and indeed, if we want to think differently about the future, we have to be careful because that choice could be quite narrow if we're not careful, right? I mean, we could just basically focus on what is comfortable to us because we are primed, right? Uh, we've experienced uh, things in, in the past that sort of color, you know, what we believe is important. So our, you know, past experiences, our belief systems just tell us what, what to look for, right? When we go on, on a new uh, uh, path of, of, you know, sort of creativity, if, if, if you will. And so, so the first step for the alien thinker is to say, you know, am I paying attention to the right things? And I'm, you know, and is my attention span wide enough, if, if, if you will? And, and so imagine, right? I mean, you're, you're the alien, you're coming from out of space. Maybe what you would see when you look at the Earth is that, hey, the Earth is inhabited by, you know, uh, interesting species. Uh, they are called cows. And in fact, the cows are driven by slaves, you know, that sort of take them around wherever they need to go. And at some, po at some point, the cows are tired, so... So they, they basically ask their, their slaves to, um, you know, to, to, to park them, essentially. Uh, and then they get some rest among civilized species. And they, they send the, 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 their slaves to, to this place where they, they sort of scream. And it's called, it's called a stadium, hmm. I think, right? And, and, then, and then at some point, when the cows are, have had enough rest, they bring back the slaves that can take them to their next destination. And obviously, that version of reality doesn't fit what we believe is, is true. But maybe that's what an alien right, would mm, see. Yeah. And, and, and that's a good metaphor, right? That, that reality is always constructed. And there's many different, you know, sort of versions of reality that potentially exist. And so when you pay attention to the world, because you're trying to identify interesting problems that need to be solved, or you're trying to come up with ways to deal with those issues and interesting solutions, then are you paying you know, attention to the things that truly matters. And, and so in the book, we describe various strategies to make sure that you do that and that you enrich the quality of your attention, if you will. And so sometimes you have, you have to zoom in, you have to really pay attention to certain categories of, of issues and, and people to really understand the world from their perspective. Sometimes you have to zoom out, right? You have to, to look at the, the forest and not just the trees. But sometimes you really have to refocus, right? The, the, the system of, 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 of actors that, that you've decided to focus on is not necessarily the right one. And I'll give you an example. Like Kellogg was trying to develop a, a, a new type of healthy cereals for, for kids. And they've talked to the, to the, the parents. They've, they've talked to the teachers. They've talked to the nutritionists. They even talked to the kids themselves. And they were trying to imagine, you know, what should be the diet for those kids uh, at home and at school. But they were not making a lot of breakthrough. And as it turns out, you know, one of the person on the team said, hey, why don't you talk to the janitors? Interesting, right? But as it turns out, the janitors, you know, had a lot of information that nobody else had access to, right? They knew exactly what the kids were eating because they could see them, right, uh, playing the outside, you know, during recess. Uh, they knew exactly what food was traded, right, on the, on the, the, the lunch uh, black market, if you will. They also knew what food was thrown away in the garbage can. Okay. So all of that information was useful to somebody trying to imagine, you know, how should we change a diet? But nobody actually thought it was relevant to talk to the janitors. 
where a good alien thinker would actually ask at least himself or herself the question, am I talking to the right people, right? And, and do I need to vary a little bit more the lenses that I'm trying to, to, to understand and to engage because somehow my vision of the world is incomplete, right? Unless, yeah. unless I, I do so. And that's what, what we mean by attention is to really try to enrich a little bit what you see, right? By paying attention to, to different types of issues, engaging different types of stakeholders to really inform and enrich your understanding of the world yeah. that you're trying to change. I loved that example in the book of, of Jeff Bezos and the Kindle as well. And um, it kind of, what you, what you say in the book is that Sony made a better device, right? So the Sony yes. device was way better than Amazon's Kindle. It was sleeker. It was the, the Porsche of, of uh, handheld devices. And the Kindle wasn't going to win if you just looked at the devices. But what Jeff Bezos realized was that you need to work out with the publishers, how will they, you know, give up? Their, their intellectual property to go into an e-reader, which is going to have a huge threat to physical book sales. Um, yeah. And and the only way to do that is for them to still make money, right? So he realized that this download-only model wasn't going to work and that he needed to subsidize the publishers and pay them more royalty from the money that he was getting from the devices. And so I just thought that was a really beautiful way of like, just zooming in and zooming out to different parts of the problem rather than just going, hey, how do we make the best device that everyone can hold in their hand? Because that wasn't the problem they needed to solve. That's right. And, and I think that the line in the book is, is that indeed uh, Sony uh, uh, designed a beautiful device and, 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 and Amazon designed a, uh, an elegant solution, right? And, mm. and that's indeed zooming in, zooming out between different types of stakeholders to realize that, uh, that you have many customers and and indeed, the user demand demand a certain type of experience, yeah. uh, but but you cannot have a winning uh, solution unless you, you you get the the publishers on board and 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 for them right uh, the challenge is how can I maintain the profitability of my distribution model? How can I protect my IP? Uh, and and that requires you know a different way of thinking uh, that 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 somehow they understood because they conceptualized the total system. Um, and, and they were able to switch between those different lenses, if you will, um, uh, as, as you described. So, so that's an yeah. interesting case indeed. Nice. And then the L of your acronym is levitation. So yeah. tell us about that. And, and, and levitation is interesting because I can tell you, I mean, I've, 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 you know, I, I, run, I run a lot of, um, of innovation journeys and I've read so many books on innovation on this particular part of the creative process that, that mm. we call levitation. Uh, and, and, you know, ev whenever we talk about innovation, we often have the impression that it's a series of sprints, right? I mean, people are always engaged in the next activity to somehow, you know, so test your ideas, come up with, you know, uh, another prototype, uh, and, and then move on because, because we want to implement as, as, as quickly as, as, as possible. And, you know, when we talk about agility and we talk about the lean startup, it sort of conveys that sense of, of energy and momentum, and we've got to, to keep moving. And, and, and that is true to some extent, but in fact, you know, we should never lose sight of the fact that innovation is, is a matter, right? I mean, the mm. more radical you want to be in your thinking, the more time and space it requires, right, for you to actually step back and make sense of, 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 what, uh, of, of what you're doing. And, and, and really levitation is, you know, the act of, of, of somehow stopping what you're doing and, and sort of separating yourself from, from action so that you can create the mental space right, to, to, to think about what it is that you're doing, whether it's working or not, and, and, and let your unconscious brain also, also function. And again, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of books written on, on this topic in leadership. And, uh, you know, one of them that is quite famous is called the Pose Principle. And, you know, they surveyed all kinds of executives around the world and they said, you know, where do you come up with your best ideas? And the answer is in the shower is while I'm commuting to go to work or when I go to the gym. Mm. Nobody says it's in a meeting with my colleagues when we do a brainstorm. Or while I'm doing email. Those right? moments, you know, where your, your mind is, is supposedly quiet, right? That all of a sudden you're able to really think about, you know, the world and, and what you've done and what you could be doing in the future in, 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 a, very, in a very different way. Yeah. And you, you gave this little example in the book, which I really liked, because I think I I struggle with this myself. And, you know, the whole the whole sort of notion of this podcast is, you know, um, 
it is about how do we get beyond the notion of busy yeah. and you know everything i'm teaching people is about how to make space for really quality thinking um and i think this is something, something that everybody struggles with and despite the fact that i teach this I also struggle with the idea of my creating the space for my own ideation as well. Like, you know, when things are busy, it's really difficult to kind of step off that, that sort of action treadmill. And really productivity is about doing fewer things, but doing them smarter and better rather than trying to do more and more things, right? Like we get into this kind of cycle with productivity that, that it's about that. But you gave the example of the restaurant El Bully, yeah. which I really love. So um, it's often seen as the, the best restaurant in the world, the most innovative restaurant in the world. Um, why is that a good example when it comes to levitation? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a good and, and bad example in a way because very very few of us can, can actually afford to, to, to implement the, the strategy that, that, that he implemented, right? So Adrian Fair, right, was indeed, you know, leading this restaurant that for five years in a row, I think, was, was, was voted the, the best restaurant in the world. And he would close the restaurant every Six months, right? For six months. Right? So, so every year he would have a six-month sabbatical because he felt he needed that space to be able to think about his next uh, series of, of creative concepts. And, and he felt that the madness of the world that he was living in did not offer the kind of tranquility, if you will, that he needed to remain creative mm. right? in, yeah. in, in a way that, that, that could be sustained. And, and, and of course, he could afford to do that but but I know very few people that can sort of afford again to have a six month sabbatical every year yeah. so that you can create yeah. a space to uh, to 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 think, and 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 that's a pretty extreme strategy again that shows that yeah you need that time right, and and and, and again I think we describe strategies that are a lot more easy to to, to implement in, in 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 the in the book uh, which I, I can describe. But I just want to insist that it's not just about this Zen philosophy, right? I mean, sometimes we have the impression that it's, you know, you need, you need time, you need, you know, for yourself. And, but this is explained by neuroscience, right? I mean, yeah. we know in, in the uh, 70s and 80s, they, they put, you know, that's when they started to experiment with, with, with brain imaging technology and they put scanners on people's brain and this, they, they try to understand what is happening, you know, with the brain of a person that is very busy doing a very sophisticated cognitive task, if you will, right? You're resolving a, a math problem or you're, you're trying to write a, 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 a poem, you know, so you're busy doing something versus, you know, what's happening to the brain of a person who's taking a walk in the forest, who is sleeping and so on. And then they realize that obviously there are different parts of the brain that light up. But what was a puzzle for neuroscientists at the time is that the mind of a person supposedly at rest was consuming 20 times more energy than the mind of a person right, that was busy doing a very complex cognitive task. And that was a puzzle for a long time. They did not understand why. But what we know today is that, in fact, your, your brain is, is working very, very hard right, when, when you're supposedly at rest. So in fact, the parts of the brain that light up when you're supposedly sleeping or taking a walk in the forest are parts of your brain that are involved in introspection, thinking about what it is that you're doing, what's working, not working, but also the part of your brain that is consolidating all those events and, and learning points that you've had right, in, in, in the past and storing them in your short-term and long-term memory. And then projecting your views on the future which is simply a way of reinterpreting what you've seen, what you've heard, what you felt in, in, in the past. And so indeed, you need to disconnect to be able to think about, you know, the present and, and also the future. And think about sports, right? I mean, wh when the team is, is engaged in a, in a play in basketball and, 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 and it doesn't work out, what is it that the coach is going to do? The coach is going to call a timeout, right? And that's precisely mm. because they realize that the current, you know, sort of, organization is not working, we need to stop, reflect, uh, and, and, and think differently about what, what we can achieve, right, in the next phase. And, yeah. and so if we cannot do like El Bulli six-month sabbaticals, maybe there are a few other things that, 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 that we can do, right? Uh, Daniel Pink in his, in his, uh, in his book, uh, Drive, uh, right, is, is, is building on the view that, that in fact, when, when you look at all the, the elite sports players and, and the chess players that have succeeded, Right? I mean, they celebrate breaks, right? I mean, they never work for extended periods of time. They work for maybe 90 minutes and then they take a break. And so we need to treat breaks 
breaks with, with greater respect, if, if you will. And so, so that might mean, yeah, take a walk, right, every day without your cell phones, you know, so that you can actually think for yourself as to what is happening. It might be sometimes like stare through the window. If you're getting stuck, you know, stare through the window and it's okay to spend 10, 15 minutes looking outside. In fact, you're not trying to see the scenery. You're just creating in your, the space in your own mind, right, mm. to, uh, to, to start, things, uh, start things anew. Um, and, and so there, yeah. there's a lot of things that sometimes it, it might require you to take a real time off, right? Take a complete break where you disconnect uh, from all those sources of stress and anxiety and you give yourself a chance to reboot. The other one for me is like with that, if, you, if you're struggling to solve something at four o'clock in the afternoon is just say, right, let's just sleep on it. You know, rather than trying to yeah. thrash through and push through and trying to find the solution, it's yes. much better to just leave everybody in that uncertainty overnight and just, you know, allow, allow our brains as we're sleeping, as we're winding down, as we're winding up to just be thinking about that problem just in different modes, right? Like, and that's something that we can all do every day. You don't need to be El Bully and closing for, yeah. for six months, but those lessons are learned in extremes. You know, I think sometimes when we have these extreme examples like El Bully, it kind of shows us how we can just do 5% of that, 2% of that, half a percent of that, yeah. but it will, it will have the same kind of effect, you know? That's right. That's right. And the problem is that often, again, people are impatient, right? I mean, around us, I mean, they, they, they think that if we are, you know, sort of taking a time off, basically we're slacking off. Yeah. Right? Where in fact, we're investing time in, 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 in real thinking, right? And, and reflection. And, and that might make what we do next a, a lot more effective. Yeah. But often people are very impatient uh, around us. And, and then ourselves, you know, we feel like, oh, you know, I better do something, right? Because we don't necessarily see the immediate value of, of that time that we invest in reflection. But, but, but I think we're in control of our agendas and, and, and we have to, to understand and then, and, and then create, right? The possibilities yeah. to do this. And that space, I think particularly when people are working from home is just, it's all the more important to, to have the boundaries and the, you know, the, the sort of discipline or the permission internally to, to make that, that happen and to sort of create that space. Um, let's talk about imagination. Um, I want to, I want to get through and talk about the other three and we don't have that long. So let's talk about imagination because the thing about this, so coming back to what you talked about before about combining different ideas. Yeah. Often what we're talking about here is, is how do you spot those patterns and put things together? Yeah. Do you have any, is there anything that you teach or is there anything that you, that you use yourself yeah. That can really help people to spot those patterns and and just see the world differently to how they see it now. And 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 my my advice would be play, right? Like mm. kids have wonderful imaginations because they don't expect to have all the answers at the start, right? Yeah. And so and so in fact, you know, a very simple exercise I I often do with the executives I work with is I, I give them six pieces of Lego and I say you have thirty seconds to create mm. a duck. And obviously, when they come up with all their ducks, they're all different, right? And, and, and why? I mean, so I said, look, you're very creative. You imagine I have 30, 40 people uh, in a group, and they all come up with different ducks, even though they had the same pieces as, as ingredients, if, if you will, in this creation process. And so they could, they could have great imagination, if you will. And, and so it shows them that, that an imaginative duck is simply a different combination of, of, mm. of ingredients that everybody had, right? I mean, everybody had the same breaks, but nobody put them like this in this particular way. But then, because I also said you have only 30 seconds, the beauty of it is that they cannot think, right? I mean, they just have to do, right? And, 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 and often, you know, you don't know, right, what the future looks like, but often we have a tendency in organizations to believe we should know. And so we, we spend a lot of time thinking and intellectualizing the future rather than getting on with it, right? Mm, and so yeah. often the great innovators are doing stuff and they're like, why are you doing this? And they're not quite sure, but they're just doing it and, and they want to see what happens, right? And so, and so they have very interesting intuitions maybe about the future, but they just want to probe and explore. And so, and so to have this playful attitude, I don't know exactly what to expect. I run this test, but I don't have a clear hypothesis. I just see... I just want to see what happens. Maybe it is a way to, to do it, right? And, you know, Alexander Fleming, just, just recently, right? I mean, we, we wrote a little article on, on, on Alex, uh, Alexander Fleming to, uh, who discovered penicillin. And there was this, this, this interesting anecdote where, where indeed his boss, you know, uh, 
you know, was not really understanding what the hell he, he was doing. And, and he had this, this interesting answer. He said, I play with micro microbes, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, he wasn't sure what he was doing, but I think serendipity is always plays a part in, in any major breakthrough. And, and, and you've got to give yourself a chance to explore the future, even if you're not quite sure what it is that you're doing, some great learning could emerge. And so play, that, that would be my, um, yeah. That would be one advice I have, you know, if we want to be imaginative, right? The imagination appears after the fact. It's not always conceptualized as such, you know, when you start. Let's talk about experimentation uh, and then we'll finish with navigation. Yeah. So you talk about some of the pitfalls of experimentation. I love this line where you say the job of experimentation is to improve the idea, not just to prove the idea. A lot of the innovators I've met, I mean, obviously are, are very fond of the ideas that they, that they want to test, right? I mean, mm. we, we worked hard to, to identify, you know, interesting issues that we want to tackle. We come up with solutions and then we need to make sure that our reasoning is, is, is correct, right? So you need to make sure that, that the solution works, that it's feasible, that, that indeed it offers a good, good solution to the problems that, that you want to solve in the first place. And so what happens that, Innovators are often in a mindset where they want to prove that their ideas has merit, right? Mm. Or that their idea has, has merit. And, and, and in the process, they are on this path right, where they search for evidence, but they discard all kind of information that doesn't fit, you know, if you will, with, with their reasoning. And, and, you know, one executive that I met, you know, once told me something that I believe is so true. He said, you know, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a beautiful sentence because it shows, you know, when you ask innovators to build a case, right? They have to, to have a good pitch, right? To, to yeah. mobilize support. And so that means you need evidence to show that your idea is correct. And so you're not on a journey of learning. You're on a journey of, you know, let me find some proof, you know, to, to demonstrate that what I'm talking about is, is, is true. And, and often it leads you to a path that, that is not very effective, right? And so... So, so we should be testing with an open mind to improve and, and not to prove. Yeah. Uh, and so the teams I work with, you know, have an obligation, if you will, to always have multiple projects in their portfolio. You test many different ideas so that you're more open to the, to the feedback that you, that you receive, right? You're not attached to one particular project in particular because you have enough, right, uh, concepts in, in your back pocket Right, that you can actually let the data speak and then follow a path that is less biased, right? In um, yeah. in, in nature, but but it's yeah. not always easy to 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 do, right? I mean, we we fall in love with our ideas and then we want to prove that we're correct, and we have to avoid that trap, if you will. Let's talk about navigation. So, what? So you you said earlier that um, the people who are good alien thinkers, they're rebels with a cause. They're not yeah. these rebels without a cause. And you talk about the idea, you sort of debunk the whole thing of here's to the crazy ones, the kind of Steve yeah. Jobs, Apple idea that, you know, the misfit, the misfits yeah. and the rebels are the ones that make everything happen. And I love this idea that not only do you have to see the world in a different way, but you've got to be diplomatic too, right? Yes. You've got everybody who, who has these vested interests. You've got all these things that are going to stand in the way of your idea. You know, of course, I, 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 I love Steve Jobs telling us, you know, like the crazy ones are the ones yeah. that bring progress to this world. But that's a very romantic view of, of mm. how change happens in, in, in organizations, right? I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, you come up with a very creative concept and people recognize it and, 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 and they see that, that you've advanced the conversation and that somehow you, you create value. But that's not the majority of the cases. I mean, often you do something different and you're met with a lot of skepticism, if not opposition, right, from, from yeah. people who feel threatened. Uh, by, by, by what you're doing, because at, at the beginning, what you're doing is not clear. Nobody knows if it really, really advance right, the world or, or actually make it worse. And, 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 so, and, so, and so it's interesting, like, you know, to, to think about the crazy ones often, they are, mm. they are labeled as, as the misfits or the, the loose cannons or the rebels and, and not those catalysts for change that, that Steve Jobs is, 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 is talking about, right? And yeah. most organizations, in fact, have this corporate immune system. When a new idea comes up, it might be treated as a virus, right? It, it might be, it might be yeah. an interesting idea for the future, but we're not quite sure, so we're going to kill it just, just in case. And, and there's an interesting example, right, that, that, that I often use to convey that, 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 that frame of mind that exists in organizations. Steve Sasson, right, was the inventor of the first digital camera, and it's just interesting that he worked for Kodak at the time. Mm. 
And Kodak, as you know, was killed by, by digital photography, but the inventor of that technology came from within the world of Kodak, except that when he presented the first digital camera to the top management team of Kodak, he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is filmless photography. And the moment he talked about this, obviously, he scared you know, the whole team yeah. because he destroyed or he clashed, if you will, with all of their beliefs around what made this company special and what made them proud around you know, how do we exist, why do we exist, and how do we succeed as a company in the market? And that, I would say, is, is a typical mistake that a lot of creative people do, is that they emphasize what is really unique, what is really different about their ideas. But they, they really alienate people who mm. could provide support. And Steve Sasson, after a few years, started to use the language of digital film. And, and when he started to talk about digital films, obviously, the enthusiasm that he was able to create, right, was there, right? But mm. filmless essentially, you know, uh, broke uh, yeah. all kinds of, of, of support that, that he could get. So, so, so is the, in the words of, of, of the innovation director of Lego, you've got to be a diplomatic rebel, right? I mean, you, yeah. you've got, you know, to, to do things differently, but you also have to build bridges. And, 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 and often the very creative types have difficulty doing that, right? And I've also worked, uh, you know, with, with uh, French La Poste. Uh, and as you know, the, the, the post office in France, like in many other countries around the world, is facing a, a lot of disruption. And, and they've managed to reinvent themselves over the years. But the CEO was telling me, Jean-Paul Bailly at the time, you've got to change so that you can stay, stay yourself. And, and, and I thought that was a beautiful say mm. because everybody wants to change, but we also want to protect what is good about yeah. what we've spent so much time building o o over the years. So we want to change so that we can continue to be good. And when we come up with innovations, it's not clear initially that what we're doing will bring progress. Yeah. So we've got to emphasize what's unique about the ideas, but also link it to concepts that people can relate to and that bring them a certain degree of comfort. So we've got to be those diplomatic rebels that can indeed bring real change to the world that we live in. Nice. Um, I wanted to leave you leave everybody with one practical thing as well. So um, uh, I'm not going to we're not going to have time for you to s tell the segue story. People are going to have to buy the book. Um, but um, one thing that really caught my attention in the book was your view on procrastination. So this is interesting to me because obviously my work around productivity, you know, I see my own role as as being about reducing my own procrastination as much as, as possible. I have a very uh, kind of human take on it, which is don't beat yourself up if you still procrastinate, everybody will. But you actually talk about it as a force for good, right? Yes. So this is really good news to, um, to to leave everybody with at the end. So tell us why procrastination isn't so bad after all. And I guess it has to be done intelligently, right? But, mm. but, but, but also Adam Grant in his book Originals talk about the art of procrastination. And again, we have to stop thinking about only doing those things that bring immediate value, right? That we can measure and that we can observe. We are sophisticated species, if you will. And, and, and that power comes from our ability to think and our ability to reflect. And we live in, in a world that creates very, very few opportunities uh, to, to do that. And, and there's often a, an interesting video that I show in class uh, that, that, that relates to a conversation that Bill Gates you know, was having with Warren Buffett. And Bill Gates was really surprised because he looked at Warren Buffett's agenda and he said that there were weeks where there was nothing on it. Yeah. And, and he said, yes, but you know, Warren Buffett said, I'm very rich. I mean, I can buy pretty much anything I want, <laughs> but the only thing I cannot buy is time. Mm. <laughs> and so I've got to be careful with it, right? And, and I think obviously, you know, I'm not, and, and most of our listeners are not like Warren Buffett, right? I mean, we cannot buy anything that, 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 that we want, but we are in control of our time and we should protect the time that we have that is with ourselves, right? That is giving us an opportunity to really reflect on where we are, what it is that we are doing, where do we want to go into the future? And that if we manage to do that, a lot of good will come out of it because we'll escape right, the tyranny of the next thing that needs to be done that essentially removes the space for creativity. 
That's probably the most perfect ending to a Beyond Busy episode ever. It's really on theme. So um, just want to say, so thank you for, so much for being on the podcast. The book is Alien Thinking. I hope people will go out and get it. And uh, thank you so much for spending time with me today. And it was a pleasure. And, and, and really, uh, I wish you all um, a lot of success uh, in uh, whichever walk of life uh, that you had. And, and, and I hope that you can be a little bit more alien. And, and then enjoy the rewards out of it and bring tremendous value to the world and to the people uh, you love and, and, and try to, to help um, around you. So thanks to Penguin Business for helping us to sort that one out. And just want to do a quick shout out to my assistant, Emily, for really helping to hold the Beyond Busy Fort over the last few weeks as we've changed over producers. And also shout out to Pavel, who has just uh, been doing the last couple of episodes for us and doing a really great job. It just feels like we're in uh, very safe hands right now with Beyond Busy, which has been really important for me because I've been heads down working on this new book, which is all about kindness in leadership. And uh, it's just really allowed me the headspace really to, to get on with that. So thank you to Pavel and to Emily for your help with all of that. As always, we are sponsored on the podcast by Think Productive. So if you want to get us in to help your team to boost productivity and help your people to do their best work, just head to thinkproductive.com. And as always, you can get all the previous episodes and show notes for this one over at getbeyondbusy.com. And you can also sign up for my Sunday evening rev up for the week emails if you go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links. Not much else to update, really. I've had a nice... I'm recording this on the bank holiday and um, had a really nice day sitting in my hammock most of the day. I've got builders in next door to my house and it's just been really loud. Just a lot of banging on a lot of work. It's been driving me a bit mad. So just to have a weekday where there's no builders and it's quiet in my garden has been really lovely. So I've just been in my shed uh, today uh, doing a couple of bits, but uh, spent most of the day in the hammock, which has been really nice. And I guess I'm on... I'm on kind of festival watch at the moment, right? Like to see if any of these festivals that I've got booked for the summer actually go ahead, craving some music, craving some live music. So hopefully that happens over the next few weeks. But uh, the sun is out and uh, yeah, it's it's getting warmer here, which is lovely. And I uh, hope everything is well where you are. So we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. Please spread the word, uh, share this with your friends and help us to reach more people with Beyond Busy. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye for now.